Now we're getting the worst of both worlds. We're creating sheeple who just want to be lied to and given a mask like, you know, it's some kind of totem to Pan or Molech or, or, or Asherah or Baal, okay? Or you're telling people, hey, don't believe anything any expert tells you. Put your head in the sand, ignore the, people are dropping dead across the street. It's fake news, don't believe it. That's a dangerous place for a culture to be. My guest today is Steve Deese. Steve is the host of the Steve D Show on the Blaze Media platform, which gets 85 million views per month. Steve didn't start out at the top, far from it. His mother was only 14 years old when she became pregnant. When he was three years old, his mother remarried. His stepfather was abusive to both Steve and his mom. After a successful high school career, he attended Michigan State University, but later dropped out. Hoping to change his fortune, he bet all his money on a college football game and lost. It was at this time in his life he pushed the reset button. He moved in with his grandmother and talked his way into a job at the Des Moines Register as a part-time assistant. After a few more bumps along the way, he became the host of the highly successful Steve Deese Show. I recently sat down with Steve and talked about where he found the strength to overcome adversity and as a leading conservative activist, what challenges he sees the nation facing over the next four years. Okay, Steve, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a while. Good to see you, brother. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, Steve, I got one question right off the bat. You have a show that attracts, what was it, 100,000 per episode? Yeah, when you look at podcasts and the TV show, yeah, probably about that. 100,000, and you are, you're on five days a week, two hours a day, talking politics, talking current events, talking everything. You're on the Blaze Media. I think the Blaze is something like 85 million views per month. It is huge. Mm-hmm. Now, I know because we spoke a little before, and I know you didn't start at the top. You started probably with every single hurdle in front of you, and they weren't one-foot hurdles, they were 10-foot hurdles, and then when you jumped over those, they were 20-foot hurdles. So I don't want to talk to you today so much about your politics. I don't want to talk about your show so much. I want to talk about you because the thing is, you're, you really are the American dream, what you overcame to be where you are. So did I miss anything there without getting into any details? Was I overstating the case? No, no, I mean... That's not even counting my own bad life choices and mistakes, but yes, on top of that, which made it even harder. But yes, you're right. Yeah. So you took a hard game and you wanted to make it harder because it was, you like the challenge, I guess, huh? (laughs) Okay. So, so you start off definitely not with a silver spoon, definitely not with any advantage. Your mother is, and I, and I, and I asked you because I wasn't sure, 14 years old when she got pregnant with you and 15 when she gave birth to you. Yeah, she found out, uh, my mom found out when uh, Christmas break in 1972 that she was pregnant with her high school uh, senior boyfriend, uh, from her high school senior boyfriend, and um, was scared. Uh, She was what we used to call white trash back in the day. She lived in the poor white trash part of Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Her mom was twice divorced and a single mom, which is a tough life today, let alone the stigma of that in the early 70s. So what's going to happen? What am I going to do? And then 
January 24th rolls around and uh, Roe v. Wade occurs. And now she didn't think she could do one of those back alley abortions like some other girls she knew of did. But now that it's quote unquote safe, legal or rare and rare, she's not sure if if it's something she could go through. She considered it, but then decided she just couldn't kill her own kid. And so on uh, July 28th, 1973, at 11.59 a.m., a 15-year-old girl named Vicki gave birth to a baby boy at Iowa Lutheran Hospital, and that son was me. So when you take a look at what typically happens to, you know, just children born into that socioeconomic environment anyway, but on top of the fact to a teenage mom, um, I mean, there's no, it, it's just providence that I am where I am today. I mean, Charles, we I was on food stamps, ADC. I, I, I remember eating government cheese. I was on reduced lunches in school growing up. So, you know, I hear so much talk and stuff today about white privilege and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just wondering, you know, I, I don't know when I got my white privilege. I'm not sure which welfare check it was, which food stamp trip to the grocery store it was, because I didn't see a lot of that when I was growing up. So your mom has you at 15 years old. Just talk to me about the stigma in a small town. What, what is that like? Well, she ended up having to move away. Um, she ended up moving away to California with my grandmother. Uh, and they took me with them as a baby uh, to kind of get a new start in life. And um, she got her GED to finish school. Wasn't sure what she was going to do with the rest of her life. My grandmother, and uh, she was helping my grandmother manage a hotel in Anaheim, California, uh, very close to Disneyland. And a group of uh, um, petty officers from San Diego had come up from shore leave to visit Disneyland. And one of them was a guy she, she kind of liked named Dave Dace. And they ended up meeting that weekend. And within a couple of weeks, they got married in Las Vegas. And now I was three years old and, you know, suddenly I've got a, a new dad and that's where my name and stuff comes from. And um, he taught me a lot of good lessons about hard work have helped me to this day. I'm, I'm indebted to, um, I don't pardon the expression half-ass anything. If I can't do anything a hundred percent to the best of my ability, I don't even try it. Those are all lessons that Dave, I'm very thankful. Um, and, uh, you know, imparted to me, but unfortunately he also came from a very abusive background. His father was a violent alcoholic and abusive to him. And when Dave would get angry or frustrated, he could become very abusive as well. So I lived with a lot of really high highs and a lot of low lows growing up based on his mood. We moved a lot. I went to 11 different schools, K through 12. So this has helped me in my work today. I don't need to be a part of your tribe. I don't need you to rub my belly and tell me I'm, the, I'm, I'm liked. I don't care. You know, I lived in a basement often to hide out from Dave's outbursts. Um, I'm used to kind of being a loner and on my own. So that's kind of given me sellout insurance in this line of work. It's, it's prevented me from taking the numerous offers I've had to sell out or threats that I needed to just because, you know, when you, on a given day, if you don't know what kind of mood your old man is in, you kind of learn to get by in life on your own without a lot of other people's approval. So your mother, your mother marries him when she's what, 18, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she moves away. Is she with your, your grandma stays where she is? Yep. We end up, uh, we were in California for a little bit, but then we moved to Michigan, uh, where he was from, you know, I'm wearing my maize and blue big 10 championship t-shirt today, but we lived all kinds of places, Charles, I'm in Florida, Syracuse. I lived in Orlando, Florida for three years. I lived in Syracuse, New York. 
I lived in Houston, Texas. I lived in Iowa where I was born uh, four different occasions. I lived in Michigan, three different occasions, California. We moved back there for a second time. I mean, we moved all over the place. So a lot of construction in the eighties, you know, I mean, he would go where the construction market was booming in the eighties. So he abused you and he abused your mom as well. He could get physically, he was physically abusive. Yeah, he was. And I think what was difficult about it is um, there were times he was a phenomenal dad. Uh, there's no question that he gets credit for some of the success I have today that um, some of it was unintentional. I mean, if I had been lived with a, with a good uh, dad, I don't know that I could have handled a lot of the pressure that's on me today, but also he taught me good constructive lessons. There were plenty of times where we had great times together, but um, he could get triggered, pardon the expression and could go dark. And when he went dark, it was bad. And I think that's kind of what made it worse is you, I think we all hung around longer than we should have, because when it was good, it was really good. And so you would rationalize it. You, you knew you should leave. You knew you should get out. But um, that, that kept our family together probably longer than it should have been because it was at times, you know, we would have great Christmases. We took great vacations. I've been to every meaningful amusement park in America, at least once. A lot of my friends didn't have a clue what was going on because from the outside, they thought I had the, the cool dad, you know, who was the, uh, he even dealt pot on the side. So they thought I had the cool hip dad. And a lot of times they didn't really know what was going on behind closed doors when things would get dark. How did you create relationships if, if with, with friends? You're moving around like, uh, gee whiz. Uh, a lot of what I learned is high achievement attracts people. And um, I, I wasn't born with a lot of obvious gifts, uh, but our creator gave me a very quick wit, the ability to absorb mass quantities of information and then regurgitate and communicate them back to you in a way that people find compelling. Um, and I, I use those things to my advantage academically. Uh, I got really involved in sports. I was pretty good at every sport, not, not really a great athlete, but good at the, at the, the skill side of the sports, you know, like in basketball, I knew I was never going to run faster or jump higher than everybody. So I learned to be one of the better shooters in my school. You know, the things that hard work and th that were, you know, talent is bestowed. I always tell people. In my line of work, you can be as smart as, as, as you want, much smarter than me. But if you're not quick on your feet, you can't host my show. You can't do this. You must just have that. And that's not a skill. You can't learn to think quicker. All right. That's just a skill you have as you're quick on your feet uh, or a talent you have. Skills are what you acquire at home. You know, so learning to shoot a basketball uh, is not like throwing a 90 mile an hour fastball where you kind of either can or you can't. Uh, shooting is a skill. So, I mean, I spent hours in the driveway becoming one of the best shooters in my school so I could make the team and make friends because in the end, uh, you know, people respect achievement. People like success. And so if you're good at things, that helps you to get in with the, in, get in with the crowd at a new school a lot faster. So you did well in high school, right? You did well in school, even though you jumped around like a jumping bean from, mm -hmm. I don't know how many high schools you went to and elementary schools or middle schools, you graduate at the top of your class in high school or middle or what? Right outside. I was somewhere outside, right outside the top 10. Cause again, the, the classic kid where 
I, you know, I just thought, hey, 3.5, 3.8 was good enough. I could have got a 4.0 if I worked harder, but I can get a 3.6, 3.7 just showing up and have fun. So I took I took the easy path is what I did. Gotcha. You're still living at home now, right? Mm-hmm. You go to college. You go to a community college, I think, first, right? I went to a community college for the, for the first year because I couldn't get into Michigan. At the time, it was taking about as many out-of-state students as any major public university in the country. And my math grade on my ACT, I scored perfect. I'm trying to remember how it works. There's three sections, right, of the ACT? I took, and I think, I, I took the SATs. I don't know. The okay. ACT is a little different. I think there's three, and I got perfect on two of them. But on math, I just bombed, which is kind of ironic because today, one of the things I'm best at is analyzing data because most data is not math. It's people's pres- uh, presumptions uh, that they impose on the math to get the conclusion they want so you can spot BS that way. Mm-hmm. I, I did not score well enough on the math part of the ACT, so Michigan wouldn't let me in. So I ended up going to Grand Rapids Community College for a year, and my plan was to get my math score up so I could get into Michigan. But then I got a chance to get into Michigan State right away and not have to do a second year of community college. So I went that path. Plus, the women were better at Michigan State. There was more of a the, more the parties <laughs> Michigan State, and um, and there were a ton of Michigan fans at Michigan State. So. I went to Michigan State and just rooted for Michigan the whole time. Right. So, and, and through college, so you, you continued on with a great high school career with academia. academia and how'd you do? Yeah, not exactly. What yeah. happened there? What happened is I ran into a, a video game called Super Tech Mobile, which was the first time that a video game kept all the stats in real time for an entire season of the, of the real players. Um, I ran into intramural basketball. I ran into parties. I ran into you know, I don't have to impress all these people anymore. I don't have to impress my dad. I don't have to impress all these new uh, uh, students and teachers to, to, to make friends anymore. And I, I really didn't know who, I hate to sound like a cliche, I didn't really know who I was. I knew what the expectations were for me. I was the first kid in my family to go to college. Um, everybody always told me um, that I had a special ability, special talent, that God had clearly gifted me, but I, but I didn't really own any of that. I, I felt like I did a lot of that stuff because it was what was expected of me from other people. And when those expectations weren't on me anymore and I was on my own for the first time, and frankly, I needed and missed Dave riding my rear end. Cause like I told you, it wasn't always bad. Sometimes he did it the right way. I, I missed it. And without it, I crashed. I probably went from the freshman 15 to the freshman 150, um, I, I, my final semester, I didn't attend a class the entire time and they ultimately ended up throwing me out. So where did you go? Where did you go from there? I went back home to Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, where I was still living at the time. And my parents were, I rented out a guy's basement. I got a job at manpower. That's a temp agency, not a gay bar. I want to clarify that. Okay. Um, doing odd and menial jobs that were terrible. But those they, they hire. I remember I used to hire them when we had a, a retail, um, not retail for manufacturing for moving stuff. Yeah, to pay the minimum yeah, wage. I did a lot of that stuff. Right. I'd go work. Assist, I'd go assist loggers for three days, and yeah. then I'd go factory for another couple of days. Yeah, I did a lot of that, and um, I got a, a, in touch with a local bookie through one of my best friends in high school, and um, uh, I was pretty good at college football wagering. And I was making some good extra money with it. And I got a little cocky one day uh, the, and, and, and decided to let everything I had won up until this point 
ride on one game and uh, it didn't win. And I was, um, I was out of money. I couldn't with the juice. I couldn't actually pay what the bet was. Right, the juice. The juice being the extra commission the that vig. you have to pay. Yes, the, the just how the book. Yeah, right. exactly. Yes, I'm sorry. And uh, we have some people here who never gambled or did a. No, they're because so they're good. He, they're good humans. Yes, <laughs> but uh, I did what every self-respecting twenty-something does when they hit rock bottom. I called my grandmother here in Iowa. And I said, hey, I got to get the H double hockey sticks out of here. Can I come live with you? And I ended up sticking this friend of mine with this gambling debt. Years later, I had a, a faith conversion and I felt really convicted about that. So I went and tracked him down. And he was managing a grocery store uh, in Grand Rapids. And I called him out of the blue. And I remember I figured out what the interest rate would be like if it was a credit card and uh, paid him back all that money with interest to make good on that loan. So he covered but, he covered your debt to the bookie. I'm assuming he did because he's um, still walking. So so wait he he vouched for you to the bookie. You make the bet. Yeah. You lose. You can't pay off nothing. That's it. You're done. You yeah. hightail it out of there. And this I bookie's ejected. looking for him. You never check back on this guy. I never did. No, I ejected. Yep, wow. ran for the. Wow. Uh, and then years later, I had a spiritual awakening and got really convicted that that was a douche move, bro. And so I went and hunted the, this buddy, of my, former buddy of mine back down. Of course, I don't blame him for not wanting to do with me, but I made sure to make him whole from a financial standpoint so at the where, very- Where do you see him? Where do you, you go to a grocery? He's working at a grocery store? No, he's in another state. I haven't seen him since- Okay. Since before I left. So you have this- so you have this, Later, I found this, him in the other state. So now you have this money- you figure out how much, how many years later it's been, has this been? It's been at least 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's probably a distant memory for him. You come, you mm -hmm. show up where? At his doorstep, at his house? At his... No, I tracked him down with a bunch of our high school friends on the phone until I finally got a hold of him on the phone, what his new number was. Okay. Yeah. He picks up the phone. Hey, it's Steve. How you doing? How does that conversation go? It was a little icy, as you might imagine. Uh, it was a little uh, frosty. I uh, got a little nipply over the phone, but I don't blame him for any of that. And um, I just wanted to make sure I got his address. I thought, I think maybe he thought there was no way I was going to pay him back, but, but I did. And did you, so you told him on the phone, I'm going to pay you back with interest every nickel. With interest. I figured out what the interest and everything would be. Yeah. And you, yep. and you never found I out. I sent a check in the mail the next day. Did you ever find out? What, did you ever find out what happened during the time you left uh, and uh, with that big debt? I did not. No. No. Wow, that's something. And have you ever been in touch with him since? Your your friend? I have not been in touch with him since. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just what do you do with a situation like that? You know, I. I did the best I could do for the douche move that I pulled. No, I'm just saying that from his perspective, I, if it was me, I would have wrote you off. Never wanted, I wouldn't pick up the phone. The fact you wrote out the check, paid him, that's like, wow, the guy really wants to make whole. So, you know, that's, that's a, uh, well, whatever it is, it is. You know, you did, you did what you felt was the right thing, which you made him whole. But, oh, wow, it must, have been, it must have been pretty terrible what he had to go through for, who knows, I, you know. 
that, that sounds like a real tough deal. Okay. You, it was. And, you know, I got, I, you know, when I moved here to Iowa, my, um, my aunt worked in the telemarketing department at the Des Moines Register and told me who the sports editor was. And I called him out of the blue. I grew up in, you know, reading Mitch Album in the Detroit Free Press. And uh, I read his biography that he got started volunteering at his local newspaper. So I called Dave Whitkey, the sports editor at the Register, and said, hey, you don't know me from Adam. I have no experience, but I want to be a sports writer. I think I have talent. I'll volunteer. I will work for nothing because I'm living rent-free at my grandma's house right now. I want to start at the bottom. Now, you think you know what that means at 22, 23 years old, right? But you don't really mean it at that age. And I went in, I, I, I came in, Dave interviewed me and thought I had potential. But when they started me at the bottom, dude, I was swabbing the poop deck. And I thought um, I was better than this, these menial news assistant tasks. And of course I have no, I have no um, credibility to make my argument. It's just all ego, you know? And they had given me an assignment, right? Finally, after months of, of pestering them to give me a shot, they oh, gave wait, wait, me- wait, Steve, see, one second. Are you getting paid during this or you, you kept, they kept- Yeah, that? I was making minimum wage. All right, but they- but, So I made- But you got your foot in the I, door, I, which is amazing, yeah, I did. right? So, yeah, you know, yeah. and just a shout out here for, for that, because there are so many people throughout my life when I've interviewed young people right out of college, and I know immediately if I'm going to hire these people or not by, if, the, if in the first three minutes- the subject of salary comes up. I know mm. it's not the person because mm -hmm. your first job, you shouldn't be taking for, you should be paying them. You should be paying the boss because mm -hmm. you have no experience. You ha they mm -hmm. have the money. They have the experience. You hope that exchange works where at the end of the period of time, you have that experience. Correct. And, uh, you know, I know several uh, people and Buffett, Warren Buffett hired one guy who wrote a check, he figured out, look, hire me for a year. He wrote out the check, what he would be paid with the social security tax, with everything, everything in there. He sent it to Buffett and said, you have zero risk. Here is my thing. Buffett did hire him. Didn't <laughs> hire him, but he paid. And he said, if you don't like it, just take the check. If, I, if you say I don't make out, I make out. How many people say I'm going to work for free? So right off the bat, as a shout right. out for something for anyone, if you want something, if you tell an, a boss, if you tell a job, I will work for free. In fact, if I was starting out, I would say I would pay you. I would do the same thing. I would give <laughs> you a check. Here's the money. If I don't earn this money in, t in, in 90 days, keep it. You have zero loss. Just give me a shot. So I did. I worked minimum wage. I was also working full time at Blue Cross Blue Shield in the mailroom. So I was slotting mail, grade two pay. That's the lowest full-time grade pay that they had at the time. But one second, let, let's be real. Let's be real. You didn't have a college degree. You right. really were, I don't know, what were your job skills that you could even offer? You know, how to bet college games? Yep, you know, how to pretty run much. Bookies, you know, yep. So, okay, that, that doesn't look well on the resume. So Untapped, untapped potential that no one had any clue how to, how to frame it or, or monetize it in any discernible direction. That was my resume. Right. <laughs> so anyone who said no to you was doing the right thing. They were looking yes. based on your numbers. They, anyone who said yes, yes gave you a leap of faith. Even if they gave you lunch as pay, they did a good service. Correct. Correct. So I would work 7 to 3.30 uh, in the mailroom at Blue Cross. Um, and then uh, I would have a little bit of a break. And then I'd start at the news desk at 5 o'clock a few nights a week, uh, part-time. Uh, and, and I mean, I was, I was literally just above swab in the poop deck. And so I, I pestered them to give me a shot for months. And then they finally did. 
and they wanted me to do a report comparing uh, high school track and field results in the Iowa state meet compared to the states we border, Missouri, Illinois. And I thought to myself, man, the only thing worse than track is field. I'm not covering track. That's for losers. Okay. And so I, I never did the assignment. And um, one Saturday I was supposed to come in and help prepare the big peach. That was the name of our sports Sunday sports page at the time. Cause it was called, it was printed on peach paper, kind of a tradition they used to do. And I didn't make it into work that day because that morning my buddies and I had gone out partying the night before. And the next morning I was going to Hardee's to go get everybody breakfast and I wasn't wearing my seatbelt and I got uh, slammed by a car broadsided me. Uh, me and the whole steering column went to the passenger side of the vehicle. The back windshield ended up like 20 yards across the street. I, I, I had glass in my head, a concussion. I got taken away on an ambulance. I should have been dead. I walked out of the ER later that night with a minor concussion. And I remember sitting in the ER that night. And I, I mean, I hadn't had a, a spiritual awakening yet, but I had a personal one, which was I was voted both, both, both most likely to succeed and teacher's headache in the same senior class. And right now I work in a friggin' mailroom and I swap and I, and I, and I do the uh, agate section and photo um, uh, shopping uh, for the sports desk every night. What, what the hell am I doing here? I mean, I'm just, this is a waste of potential. So I'm going back in there after I get better and I'm, I'm going to be the best damn part-time news assistant they have ever had. Well, let, me ask you, right? let me ask you a question. Why did you, you know, really, you know, it's much easier to, uh, you know, avoid stupidity than to seek brilliance. So mm -hmm. why a smart guy, and, and, and you might not have an answer for this, what self-destructive thing was going on in your head that basically said, I have opportunity in front of me, because you're a smart guy, you're no idiot. I, I have an opportunity here. Let me try to screw it up as badly as I can. If they told me to write field, I, I, I'd go down and, I don't know, I, I'd write articles about how grass grows and anything they needed me to do, I do. Here you finally have the opportunity. You're in the, your foot in Great the door. Great question. And you Great destroy question. it. Why do you blow it up? Because there's a reason in the scriptures we're told to humble ourselves a lot. I had, like most people do at that age and at every age, but particularly at that younger age, an overinflated view of myself and what I was owed. And frankly, this is what I did miss constructively about Dave is when he wasn't drunk and he wasn't high. And when he was a good dad, he made you toe the line. You had to explain yourself. You had to be disciplined. There were expectations you had to meet. I was dis, I was, I was dispatched from that. And then, and then what happens is you use his abusive side to justify why you don't need any of the discipline. You know what I'm saying? He, he didn't teach you any good stuff. So you just throw the baby out with the bathwater and then you don't want to be held accountable for any of your own actions. And so I, I really believe that accident was the first step that God made in uh, sticking his foot up my backside and getting my attention that I had, um, uh, a purpose to my life, a calling on my life. He had given me these talents and abilities to do something other than play Super Tecmo Bowl and intramural basketball with them. And where's your, where, and, where's your mom during all literal this? Literal wake-up call. Where's your mom during all this? Um, she is actually, my mom by this time, is she's got a tumor on her spine. 
and and she's undergoing surgeries. She, I, I, you know, I told you she got her GED. When I got a little bit older, um, and my brother was old enough to be in school, she went back to college and got a nursing degree. So I mean, she went from a 15 year old mom to a nurse. Uh, she had worked in ER. She was running the local walk-in clinic in Grand Rapids, but they had discovered a cyst on her spine. And it was getting really difficult for her to work. And they were trying to figure out what to do with it. And finally determined, even though it was benign, that they needed to take it out. And it, a nerve, it's a dangerous surgery, but they were concerned of what, what long-term if they left it in. And a nerve got severed while they were taking it out. And uh, ultimately, she just was disabled from that point on. She couldn't work as a nurse anymore. Hmm. And so what happened to her? What, what did you take care of it or? Uh, uh, um, I ended up having to, you know, I took care of her for a bit. She's remarried now. Uh, Dave ended up leaving her literally in a hospital. Uh, Cause he just didn't want to, have to take care of her anymore. So my wife and I, we were just married, helped her for a little while. And then she met another guy, a wonderful guy named Jim, who's taken really good care of her for the last 15 years or oh, so. That's great. That's great. But when I got back to the register, I show up in a neck brace and I didn't know that that Saturday they were going to fire me for not fulfilling that assignment for insubordination. And they only told me this months later. And they told me the reason they didn't fire me is I showed up with a neck brace and they just didn't have the heart to do it. So some of that heart news uh, media, liberal media bias actually worked to my favor uh, for a change. But when I came back, man, I, I went to work. I mean, I, I kicked ass and took names. I, I did everything. Worked every hour I could. Months more, more went by. By now, I've met the woman who's my wife, and we're thinking about getting married. And I'm trying to figure out if I have a career in media or not, or if I'm just going to work at a company like Blue Cross, uh, working my way up through their chain. And so uh, I decided to push the issue at the register. Uh, we had the, the number one boys basketball team in the state of Iowa was outside the Des Moines area. So even though we were the largest newspaper in the state, we hadn't covered them yet. So I went, I called them up uh, and pretended to be a, a new reporter at the paper assigned to high school sports, interviewed the coach, the star players. I was going to do a massive profile on their team for the paper. Didn't tell the paper I was doing this at all. Figured no companies ever fired somebody for taking initiative, right? So I wrote this long profile and I was working on the sports desk as an assistant on a Saturday night for the Sunday paper. I had the story done. I waited till everybody left. And then I filed it in our digital system after everybody left, like you would if you were a reporter assigned to a story. Why'd you do that? Why, why'd you do that? I, because I wanted to see if, if I was good enough to be a writer or not. But they wouldn't give you the opportunity? And I thought they'd never give me the opportunity because of how I had done it before that I had to kind of take the bull by the horns and do it, take charge this time. So Monday, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, so I did this on a Saturday night. Monday, I'm in the new, I'm in the mail room at Blue Cross Blue Shield, delivering mail, slotting mail. Call comes in. It's my assistant editor at the register. He's like, hey, you are not allowed to violate protocol like this. You get your blankety blank over here. As soon as you're done with your uh, shift over there, we're going to have a talk. So right after I get done with my shift at 3.30, we're, these, these two corporations are right across the street from each other at the time. So I went across the street into the newsroom at the register and the deputy sports editor is waiting for me. And it's just him and I, because the crew hasn't come in to do the nighttime paper yet. 
And he just berates me for what I did, misrepresenting myself. And of course, everything he said was true, but I wanted to push the, the issue to see if I was, had earned another chance. And he, he berates me for several minutes and I'm contemplating what's the, what mic drop snotty one liner am I going to get off before I quit and walk out of here and tell my buddies years from now at, at, at a bar after my blue cross shift, how I told the editor of the register off once. And so I'm trying to think of what my walk-off shot's going to be. And while I'm thinking about it, as he's yelling at me, he finally looks at me and says, but your profile is really good. So we're going to run it on the front page of the sports section tonight. And that's the first gift my wife ever bought me is she had it. She had that cover story on the front page matted. I still have it hanging in my man cave today. And that's how my media career got started. How I got into radio. I uh, wrote a feature about the first sports talk station in Des Moines. The guy who ran the station called me a few months later, asked me if I wanted to be on the air. I said, are you going to pay me? He said, yeah. I said, okay. Every radio job I've ever had, every broadcasting job I've ever had, somebody literally called me I didn't previously know and offered me the job. One time in my career, I actively tried to get a broadcasting job. And I, Amy and I, because Amy's, my wife's originally from Michigan too. And so we originally thought that maybe our goal when I was just doing sports talk radio was to get back to Michigan and work in Detroit, a big market covering all the teams that I used to you know, grow up watching. And there was this, uh, a, a WDFN was the big clear channel sports station in Detroit at that time. And their program director was a guy named Greg with two G's, Greg Henson. And every day for a week, I sent him a pizza long distance from Iowa to be delivered with my, with my name or his name spelled out in pepperoni to try to get him to listen to my demo tape. Finally, he, after several days of this, he finally got back to me and says, we don't have any openings. I don't think you're that good anyway. And I didn't get the job. I believe not that I'm bitter, but I believe he is now on his like fourth or fifth radio job since he told me that. Um, let's just say I've kept a little track of how that's gone. Um, some of your viewers, listeners may know Dave Repson. He works at the Big Ten Network. He's their lead anchor. Years ago, when I was starting in sports talk radio, he would come on my show as a guest when he was at ESPN. And he came, he went from the Quad Cities in Iowa to ESPN. So he's like, dude, if I can jump from the Quad Cities with your talent, you could do that too from Des Moines. So let me put you in touch with my agent. All right. I send his agent the best material I have. A month or two weeks goes by, he doesn't follow up with me at all. I finally called Dave Revson's agent. I said, Hey, I just want to know if you got my stuff. He said, Hey kid, you're not that, you're not that good. Probably. I mean, it's great that you got a gig at 26 years old in Des Moines. You should probably settle in for a nice life in Iowa, meet a good woman, settle down. But I don't really see you going uh, bigger than that with what I heard. So I, I, those, those are things I learned being out of Dave's home. I needed motivation. I, I, I needed someone like him who, when he, even when he, when he was, I needed the sober Dave who would push me the right way that motivated wise, I would take the easy path. So these little slights, these little grievances, I use things like this to motivate me throughout the course of my career. What do you think these guys heard in your demo tapes that made you not that good or kids you much, you, you know, you know, we're near what we need looking as a professional. That's a really now. good question. I think part of it was I was raw. You know, when I got my own radio show, when, when, I, when, well, when I started co-anchoring a radio show, I'd never done one ever before. 
I had no idea how to format a show, hadn't really discovered my own voice. You know, I think what Revson heard is he just heard me with my ability to analyze a game, right? From talking to him about it. That's not the same as hosting a program and formatting it and everything else, you know? And so I think it was just really raw. That's most of it. But I think another little part of it is I'm a nonconformist. And that hurts me sometimes in conservative media when we're expected to basically be a mouthpiece for the Republican Party. But to me, I, I think BS is BS, regardless of whether you have an R or a D or an I or a Z or a, a you know a, a, a Greek alpha after your name, okay? And so I think a lot of times we like people that will, it's like a producer on CNN told me once, I don't really care what your opinion is. I wanna know what side of the argument you're on. But what if I think both sides of the argument are full of uh, poop, you know? And so I think there's this notion of how do we fit people into the narrative, you know, where there's always a hero and a heel, like everything's pro wrestling, right? And my nonconformist streak at times, I think, has had people in my industry wonder, hey, okay, even if I think he has talent, if this guy alienates both sides of every argument, how can I make money off of that guy if he doesn't build any kind of a loyal following and everybody hates him all the time? And how did you end up where you are now? How I ended up where I am now is um, I ended up getting switched from sports to news talk in Iowa. And on the big blowtorch there, WHO, a lot of people gave me credit. They shouldn't have, but they gave me credit for Mike Huckabee's surprise win in 2008 over Mitt Romney because my show basically did all the oppo research and uh, did all the advertising that he didn't have the money to do. Um, Mike won the caucuses. Candidates win elections, not hosts. I might have been the reason Romney lost because I did the oppo that Mike didn't have the money for. But that gave me a lot of exposure. It really grew my show. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, we had uh, a historic election where we took out Supreme Court justices. And my show was a big reason why we're able to do that locally. And so wait, so you, guy, could you explain to me how that's possible? I, I'm, I'm in New York. You're in the sure. heartland. So how is that possible based on the way our system works for you? We have, have, uh, we have retention elections for Supreme Court judges in Iowa. And no one, this has still never been, the only time it's ever been done in American history is what we did in Iowa in 2010, uh, where they tried to amend the constitution uh, on the marriage issue, which they're not allowed to do. So we went after them. My show on a 50,000 watt blowtorch basically was the air war, the ad war for this movement. And by almost 10 points, we ended up beating three state Supreme Court justices in a retention election, which had never been heard of before. After it was over, uh, 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 somebody came to me and said, hey, I know a group of Christian businessmen who were very impressed with the influence you've had in Iowa. They know how Rush Limbaugh got where he's at, which is he was sitting in Sacramento, California, and a couple of successful businessmen spotted this guy in a mid-major market and said, hey, we think this guy could do big in New York. Let's get him on in New York. And likewise, they're willing to put the, the seed capital around you to see if you want to see what's beyond Des Moines, if you could get to a bigger platform, they're willing to give you the financing uh, to try to get to that point. You know, my wife and I thought it over, prayed it over. I had a great job at WHO, job security, but we just thought we'd regret it 20 years from now if we didn't at least see what could happen, right? So we took the gamble. I honored my six-month non-compete to the letter of the law. And when it was over, 
I wasn't sure what to do next, frankly. <laughs> okay. I had some political contacts because I'm very involved in presidential elections. So I knew some people, but I got a call one day. Um, pardon me, Marco Rubio moment there. I got a, I got a call one day from a guy named Stu Epperson Jr. And he said, hey, uh, my dad is the founder and chair- chairman of Salem Broadcasting, which is the number one Christian media company in North America. Oh, wait, hang on a second. So you take, th- these guys come and say, we're going to back you. We want to see how mm-hmm. good you're going to do. You, mm-hmm. Do they have a deal on the table? Do they tell you? No, they don't, none of them are radio guys. And I told them, hey, you guys need to know, I don't know how to get from point A to point B. I mean, if you're willing to pay me to figure it out, we'll try it. But they're all six, they're all very successful, wealthy men in other industries. They don't know anything about radio. Are they putting up any money? Yes. So at least you're getting paid during these six months. Yes. Okay. So yes. You, you quit your job. Six months, yep. you do nothing, basically. I did. I was allowed to do some online things. So I did some things during that was the 2012 Iowa caucus cycle. So I did some things for Politico and some other places about what was going on in Iowa just to keep in the game and my name out there. But that was about it. That was about all I did for six months. OK, so th- these guys have money. They're backing you. They want mm-hmm. your. They, they think you could become a somebody. Mm-hmm. So if six months you're in the wilderness. Six months is over. Now what happens? I began calling every contact I have, every political contact I have, every political favor I have, because I was owed quite a few, and I just wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, and then I get a call one day out of the blue sky, guy named Stu Epperson Jr. He said, hey, my dad is the founder and chairman of Salem Media, and we're looking to see if we can find someone who can do what Glenn Beck does, where he kind of fuses both uh, a, a spiritual religious element with a contemporary current affairs show, but can you do but somebody that could do it where, you know, we're a company with evangelical convictions. So we're looking for somebody with who's like-minded and we've been trying to find that person. And a friend of mine sent me your stuff a few months ago and told me, Hey, you're the guy. And I listened to it. And I think it's spectacular. I think it might be you. And a couple of days later, one of my uh, investors has his own plane. We flew down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina to meet Stu Epperson Sr. and his, if you're familiar with Gone with the Wind, Tara-like um, <laughs> uh, 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 I don't know what you would call it, ranch, homestead. It's gorgeous. Okay. Uh, and Stu Epperson Jr. was instrumental in getting my foot in the door in national media. Uh, a couple of years later, Salem decided to go ahead and syndicate me alongside uh, Medved and Prager and uh, Hugh Hewitt and a lot of those guys. They created a time slot for me. By this point in time, we had another company had started called Conservative Review uh, that was started by some former conservative uh, Capitol Hill staffers and activists who wanted to begin to hold the Republican Party accountable from the right. And they wanted a media guy and they reached out to me to kind of be the media guy on the team. And so uh, I was working for them and with Salem. Wait, hang on a second, Steve. What happened to those guys who were backing you? Did they ever get- They're still backing me until, I mean, well, now they're still with me. They don't have to back me anymore. We're making enough money now. No, no, but I'm saying when Salem called you up, when when these guys are still part of that deal? Yeah, they're still part of the deal to this very day. But they act, they're more of my elders now, if you, essentially they- hold me accountable to make sure I don't make dumb decisions and 
things of that nature. Okay, but, okay? The, but you had to go in with them with Salem or you could have told yep. them? Oh, I, took my, I took my investors to Winston-Salem with me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So the deal was that they, you were partners with them in any deal going forward? Yes, yes. Gotcha. Okay, Correct. good. And uh, um, so I'm doing both Salem. Our show had gotten to about 80 affiliates, including New York City and a lot of other big markets. Um, conservative review decided that, uh, they wanted to start kind of their own video product and podcasting platform. Um, and so I decided to go exclusively with them because it was also better for my family to not be doing this from eight to 11, uh, at night, you know, with school age children. So I went with them and about a year later, they merged with the blaze. Uh, and now I'm ironically work doing the show right after Glenn Beck. And here, here, here we are. The rest is history. So, and uh, one of my books has actually just got sold. We're doing the, we're turning it into a movie as we speak. It's, um, it's being scripted for a motion picture as we speak. So, I mean, I got that deal, Charles, because literally movie producers called me out of the blue and said, Hey, we heard about your book on Glenn Beck show. We want to buy the movie rights. I mean, literally everybody has every opportunity I've had that's worked someone has just called and offered it to me. So Salem is part of your deal anymore or they're, they're out there. Nope. I'm just now with blaze TV now blaze TV and podcast blaze media. And they were cool to get to let you out of that deal. Mm -hmm. Well, they, I didn't really work for them. I, what I've maintained this entire time is I have my own company and all these other companies contract with my company for my content. I've never been the blazes employee. I was never Salem's employee. For the last 10 years, I've only been an employee of my own company. And then these other companies decide if they want to purchase my content for me. So basically, I work as a vendor. Gotcha. So you've been doing this show for how long now? The current Blaze TV show, we started it uh, about two and a half years ago. And you're up to 100,000 listeners per episode. Yeah, when you factor in listeners, viewers, podcasts, I'd say that's a fair to conservative estimate. Why are people tuning in to listen to you? There's so much competition out there. Why are they listening to you? I think it's, um, there's, there's a meta reason, a macro reason, and then there's a, there's a contemporary micro one. On a meta macro level, I think it's because, you know, when, when, when I started this, I wanted to do for a biblical worldview what Rush did for conservatism. That Rush showed we didn't have to water conservatism down, that it could be an entertaining product. That's the number one thing. If it's not an entertaining product, this is, as the great prophet Snoop Dogg once said, show bidding it. Mm -hmm. So it's not an entertaining product. No one cares how smart you are, how righteous your ideals are, how virtuous your virtues are. It's irrelevant. It's got to be an entertaining product. And I think Rush showed that we could do that with conservatism. I wanted to take this now to another level. Now that we've established kind of a baseline politically, there's a missing spiritual element in the country that I think people are craving the more and more we drift away from it. And I wanted to show, I, I mean, I used to go to trade shows when we were first launching our national show and I'd hear program directors say to me, I don't know if to put you on my conservative station or Christian station, which station should I put you on? And I would always say, I don't, well, is it a good show? Yeah, then put it on your best station. Don't worry about whether it's a Christian show or a conservative show. Is it a good show? Because I'm not trying to do a, a Christian show. I never have. I'm not trying to do a conservative show. 
I'm trying to do a damn good, damn good show. And if I do a damn good show, then the, the values I have will shine through the fact that it's a good show. I'm not out. I'm not out. I'm not plotting every day on which parts of the scriptures can I infuse into my program. What I'm plotting every day is how do I do a good show? Because if that happens, my belief system is going to shine through. I don't have to contrive it. I don't have to force it, coerce it. So I wanted to, I wanted to do for a biblical worldview what Rush did for conservatism. And I think that there's a market of people who have never heard uh, God's word through any prism other than explicitly in a pulpit or through a certain framework that they've kind of stereotyped or dismissed and have never seen it applied to anything other than explicitly spiritual or religious principles, but everyday ways that we actually live here in a very practical material world. I think that's the meta reason. And I think the micro thing, our audience has doubled in the last year because right away when I read the Imperial College survey, uh, I smelled a rat from the very beginning with the COVID data and the models. They weren't congruent. The, the premise and the assumptions did not add up to the conclusions. And our show was one of the very first that began pushing back on whatever this last year has been. Listen, on one hand, COVID-19 is at the very least the worst pandemic to hit this continent since the Hong Kong flu. That's a half century ago. It's probably worse than that. So that would make it the worst since the Spanish flu a century ago. That cannot be dismissed. Much of what we've been told about that seriousness has been erroneous, unscientific, flat earth, voodoo, BS. And our show has been on the, uh, the front lines of that. And I think people, a lot of people around the country sensed something wasn't right, especially when you're not asked, when you're not allowed to ask questions. Usually when someone in leadership won't let you ask questions about their truth, it's because their truth is probably a lie. And, and I, our show has doubled in audience in the last year because of the role we have played in pushing back on this. How did they find you? How did they know that you were doing this? A lot of it's just been happenstance. People see us get shared, word of mouth. Um, I wish I could tell you it was some slick, sophisticated marketing campaign. No, <laughs> it's just kind of happened. So, actually. so how do you do this two hours a day? Every single day, forget about after once the show is done, forget about putting on the show, all the research, all the you have to be always on current, especially right before your show starts. If something breaks, you got to get phoned mm -hmm. up on that immediately. How do you do that? Well, it goes back to what I said from the very beginning it, it, it helps that I'm very gifted in a quick wit, I've got a near photographic memory, I can absorb mass quality quantities of information. Um, which makes me perfectly suited. It just so happens for the job that I have. I have a great staff of two. Uh, my producer, Aaron handles, I can outsource everything technical to him with minimal supervision. Uh, I mean, he shares part of my brain, uh, my editor and my assistant, Todd, the other half. Uh, and he makes sure he does. I hand a lot of the research and stuff off to him now. Um, because he understands what I'm thinking and, and where I'm coming from. So having uh, a quality staff alongside just my God-given giftedness uh, helps me do a lot of work in a shorter amount of time than it would take probably the average person so that I always make sure I've got plenty of family time and everything left over. What's the next step for you? 
We're about to release a book. We're about to uh, drop a house on a witch named Anthony Fauci. Uh, the book is finished. It'll be released. We're going to rush it to paperback with the publisher. We're going to bypass hardcover to get it in the hands of people like you and audiences like yours as soon as possible. It will be the um, layman's compilation takedown of the biggest fiend and fraud, I think, in, in American history, Anthony Fauci, the most dangerous and powerful bureaucrat we've ever seen. And that book will be out sometime later this spring. Uh, the movie version for my 2016 book, A Nefarious Plot, we're going to start shooting it sometime later this year. And then I guess we just hope the show continues to grow, I guess. So when you come out with the Fauci book, what do you expect to have happen? I want people, two things. One, it's a shame we're a year into this and the first real, other than two attempts Rand Paul made in the Senate, the first real skeptical questioning this man has faced came from a Mexican comedian over the weekend. Nothing from our own media. Uh, when we're going to hand this much power to somebody unelected, we reserve and deserve to have his to have him face skeptical questioning. That's number one. We're we're going to do the work. Our uninquisitive un uninquisitive media who told just to lock down forever until there's a vaccine. We're going to do the work that the media didn't do for the last year. But number two. This can never happen again. I believe Donald Trump is not president today because he surrendered his presidency to Anthony Fauci for four months and never recovered. That set into motion the mail-in voting and everything else that ended up creating the outcome we saw last year. We can never again allow an unelected bureaucrat, one singular figure, to have this much un, un, uh, non-transparent and unaccountable power None of you expect to remain any form of a free people. This can never happen again. But shouldn't the political uh, system rein a person like that in? Why, why, was, yeah. he, why was he let to go loose? Uh, that will get covered in the book as well. All the, all the potential answers to your question, brother, are bad. I'll say that. Okay. But this also comes down to ultimately self-government begins with the self. We really have to assert ourselves more in this process. Um, you know this as a successful businessman. There's a limited amount of people that you can trust to think for you. And they have to really earn that level of, of, of trust. And, that, and, and once earned, though, it doesn't take much of a giant screw-up for that trust to be gone, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone else, you know you've got to remain in charge. You've got to be abreast of situations. You've got to be in control. And I think that we have we have... We have turned representatives and proxies into leaders so that we, we, um, we, we don't consent, we defer. And those are, consent of the governed makes you a citizen. Deference to a government makes you a subject. And we have been far, far too different uh, as, as the people, as, as we the people in America. And I think that's Reflected in the fact 92% of incumbents get reelected every year. So looking back on this whole COVID, really we're one year after the fact, and we saw the lockdowns and the masks and, and all the things that went through. We're going to look back on this as just a disaster. And all the studies are coming out. I saw the Wall Street Journal last week that Sweden didn't have a lockdown. They have just the same amount of cases. Mm -hmm. There was no... And I'm living in New York where we had de Blasio and Cuomo make up their own numbers, their own edicts, their own restrictions. It was a disaster. 
disaster. What can be put in place to make sure something like this never happens again? We need a, the number one thing we need is a 9-11 style tribunal about this last year. And it's not just because of the fraud and the gaslighting, as you just gave some examples. I've never seen a subject gaslighted more in my career than Sweden. I mean, most of my career in conservative media, I've been told by my lefty friends, we need to become like Sweden. Finally, last year, I was like, hell yeah, let's see what Sweden's doing. And ever, all the rest of my lefty friends were like, Sweden wrecked them, barely knew them. I don't know what the hell is Sweden. And then, I mean, I've never seen anything more gaslighted in my career than what happened with Sweden. And Sweden will get its own chapter in our Fauci book, which will have more footnotes than pages, by the way. This book will be airtight. I don't attack when I'm not willing to kill, and I don't step into the arena unless I know I've got my facts right. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna drop a neutron bomb on this issue. But what we need is a fully transparent 9-11 style tribunal. Because Charles, it's not just about the exposing the fraud of this last year. But think of the other side of the equation. There's a lot of Americans right now that don't want to take vaccines because they don't trust the media that's telling them it's safe because they don't want to trust the media that's lied to them for the last year about masks and lockdowns and California and Andrew Cuomo and nursing homes. They don't want to trust a media that says, Hey, AstraZeneca's vaccine is great. Ignore the fact that Italy, France, Germany, Norway, virtually every European nation is telling you they're not going to give it to their people. Now, I don't know if AstraZeneca's vaccine is good or causes blood clots or not. I just know that big tech won't allow me to talk about it on my Twitter account. See, when you do that with people, when the truth is no longer attainable, it works the other way. There may very well come a time that we actually do face a Captain Trips level contagion that does take precedence even over our individual liberty when mere survival is at stake. We've now conditioned an entire portion of the population not to believe public health officials at all because they've been lied to so much and told that if you question this, if you question why all of a sudden an anti-malaria drug that's been licensed since the 1950s is now being called dangerous so that you can you can market remdesivir that doesn't freaking work instead, you're banned from your Facebook page and can't get your, 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 your kids' pictures that you put up there 10 years ago. You can't get those back from you. You're, getting, you're locked out forever if you do that. When you tell people that, you're, you, now we're getting the worst of both worlds. We're creating sheeple who just want to be lied to and given a mask like, you know, it's some kind of totem to Pan or Molech or, or, or Asherah or Baal, okay? Or you're telling people, hey, don't believe anything any expert tells you. Put your head in the sand. Ignore the people are dropping dead across the street. It's fake news. Don't believe it. That's a dangerous place for a culture to be. I do think that's where we are now. I agree. It's where we are now. Ironically, of all places, the left-leaning Atlantic had a feature last week. I talked about it on my show that totally nailed where we are as a culture. And it talked about the fact that as America has turned from God, religion is actually not diminished at all. Instead, politics has, has been elevated to the level of religion. And you see this in how, you know, we were having a nice, tidy culture war for 20 years in America where we were killing each other on op-ed pages, cable news shows, debates. But then when it was over, we all went to the ball game together, rooted for the home team. We all went to the high school recital together and watched our kids play. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there were ground rules. It was not a zero-sum game. Everywhere you went, you didn't feel like you had, it was a culture war when you took your kids to Disney World. 
we have turned this into a zero sum game now. There's nowhere to go. We have to fight like this everywhere we go. That just creates bone on bone, no cartilage level of division and friction constantly in the culture. And we are devolving now. Now that we've lost our faith in God, we're turning towards political idolatry, my tribe against your tribe. I have no standards. My only standard is my side wins no matter what and your side loses because life is over if your team wins. That's a dangerous place for a culture to be, and it's where we are right now. We went from coexist to zero sum in a heartbeat. That's exactly right. We, yeah, we, and we did it like in 15 minutes. And I, I really believe that the left, of, of, well, a segment of the left did this, particularly with the advent of social media, particularly after social media companies went public and they thought they knew that they could pressure them that way, okay, to basically be their, their, uh, their thought police. That's number one. But now what's happened in the last few years is our is is on my side here on the right. Our people have been like, okay, if that's if that's what we're gonna do, then I get Netflix boy, boycott everything, Disney, ESPN. I mean, I put up a post inviting people to join my NCAA tournament bracket contest to win show swag on one of my social media accounts. First six posts were like, I don't ESPN hates me, social justice, I'm out. Now both sides have decided I'm not living with anybody I don't agree with and affirms me all the time. That that's not good. If you had children or grandchildren, I got three teenagers right now. You know, I'm worried about that future for them. Once Dr. Seuss is off limits, what's game? Right. Everything. Right. Dr. Game. Seuss is now Das Kapital right. or the John Birch Society training manual. Right. But you can watch Cardi B simulate with another woman mm -hmm. on the last night. I mean, that that's not a healthy place for a culture, Matt. And how do you see this ending? Revival or bust. If we don't have, there's a reason why we had great awakenings in the 18th century before we had freedom and liberty. And then we saw more great awakenings in the 19th century to sustain that. I think we're living on the fumes of that. And I think without revival, without putting the God where our rights come from at the center place of civilization again, we're going bust because this is always what happens when cultures turn their backs on the God of the Bible. They turn towards idolatry and they devolve into, into sectarianism, tribalism, because each side debates whose idol is worthy of the idolatry. Everything's a zero sum game. And we're heading down that road. In fact, I think we're sadly on it right now. Once we took out the declaration of independence and God out of the school system, game over. It was just a yeah. matter of time. Yep. It was just Absolutely. a matter of time. All right, Steve, I look forward. And, and by the way, when, when is this book coming out, Fauci book? We're aiming for, if we can get it out, uh, sometime in, by the end of April. Oh, wow, pretty soon. Yep. All right, I definitely have to have you on the show back in May, Tom. We got to talk more about this after I've read it and read every footnote and try to see uh, what I'm missing here. But um, uh, yeah, being, being a recipient of this craziness in New York when... At Thanksgiving time, the governor said, Governor Cuomo said, houses of worship can't have more than 10 people. Mm -hmm. And we have synagogues that can hold 1,000 people. We couldn't go to synagogues. Mm -hmm. This is our religious freedom taken away in a heartbeat until the Supreme Court ruled against that. But it, it, it never in my life have I ever felt the, how, how our freedoms are this much away from being taken away from us than the past year. Yes. Never. You I mean, never thought it. Never would have thought yeah. it was even possible, especially yeah. in a place like New York City. Mm -hmm. 
So it's really, I think maybe this is the shot across the bell to wake us up, not towards revolution, but I think reawakening is, is, a, is a good, um, is, is, is really where we should, where I think you summed it up best. I think that's it. Amen. All right. Steve, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I enjoy this. An hour went by like a heartbeat here. I could speak to you for another hour, but you got to probably prepare for another show <laughs> soon. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show, and, and you're welcome back anytime. You bet, man. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.